The reading can be found on page 973 and is taken from Matthew chapter 8, beginning to read at verse 18. That's page 973. When Jesus saw the crowd around him, he gave orders to cross to the other side of the lake. Then a teacher of the law came to him and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another disciple said to him, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. But Jesus told him, Follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. Then he got into the boat and his disciples followed him. Without warning, a furious storm came up on the lake so that the waves swept over the boat. But Jesus was sleeping. The disciples went and woke him, saying, Lord, save us, we're going to drown. He replied, You of little faith, why are you so afraid? Then he got up and rebuked the winds and the waves, and it was completely calm. The men were amazed and asked, What kind of man is this? Even the winds and waves obey him. When he arrived at the other side of the region of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men coming from the tombs met him. They were so violent that no one could pass that way. What do you want with us, son of God, they shouted. Have you come here to torture us before the appointed time? Some distance from them, a large herd of pigs was feeding. The demons begged Jesus, If you drive us out, send us into the herd of pigs. He said to them, Go. So they came out and went into the pigs and the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and died in the water. Those tending the pigs ran off, went into the town, and reported all this, including what had happened to the demon-possessed men. Then the whole town went out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they pleaded with him to leave their region. This is the word of the Lord. Great. Please do have that passage open in front of you as we look at it together. And I'll pray. So make sure you've got Matthew 8 open in front of you. Loving Father, please open our eyes once again that we might behold wonderful things in your words. But Father, we know it's not enough just to hear your words. Father, the foolish man built his house on the sand. He heard your word, but he did nothing about it. Father, we pray that we would be those who hear your word and through the power of your Holy Spirit might live in humble obedience to all that we read. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As a postgrad student in Bath, I had to go and find a new church. When I moved there, one had been recommended to me, and so I started to go. 
And after a few weeks, I met with a vicar one-on-one at his house. Bit of a scary moment, that was. And it was then that he told me of all that happened on the day that I first walked into church. And he said that as he saw me, he felt God clearly told him that this person who he didn't know, whose name he didn't know, would have an important healing ministry. I wasn't expecting that when I walked through the door, I can tell you. Well, he prayed for me somewhat fervently. But I have to be absolutely honest with you. There are times for me when that has been a pretty painful memory. You see, for since then, I have prayed many, many, many times for people to be healed. People in this church, people who I have loved dearly. And I have to be honest and say this, that I have yet to see my own prayer or touch result in what I would call an obvious, miraculous healing. I do believe God answers prayer. I do believe that God does miracles these days. Too many people I know very well and whom I trust have told me stories that I simply believe. But I've yet to see that to be true of my own prayer or touch. See, the truth is, I would love to say, walk to someone in a wheelchair and they get up and take their first faltering steps. I would love to say, be gone to a cancerous growth and it miraculously disappears. If I did have that gift, I guarantee you, we would draw a crowd, wouldn't we? We won't have to worry about us doing the hard work of going out and sharing our faith in order to see these pews refilled after our reordering. In fact, we'll have to keep redoing the service pan because there'll be so many coming. One church in Taunton in May has a visiting speaker. I won't say which one in case you don't come back. But the way it was said to me was, and I don't say this negatively, I just tell you uh, that with this particular speaker, they stopped counting the number of dead people that he has raised when they reached 400. Let me tell you, there will be a crowd that week. I bet you. And that's where we find ourselves in this passage. Please don't hear me making a positive or negative. Don't go away hearing me say that. I just want you to see the point that then Jesus makes. Because that's where we find ourselves in this passage. Jesus has just preached the stunning sermon on the mountain, the sermon on the mount. And then miraculously healed three people, a leper, a centurion slave, and Peter's mother-in-law. And he has drawn a crowd, verse 18. When Jesus saw the crowd around him, he gave orders to cross to the other side of the lake. Extraordinary. Here's a crowd, what do we do? Let's get away. Jesus is not interested in drawing a crowd. As one commentator says, he is not interested in having people follow him. He is interested in having followers. There's people who follow him, who hang around, but true followers, like the leper, like the centurion, who call on him as Lord and get up and serve him. Jesus is not just interested in people who hang around him, associated with him. He wants disciples. This is a passage all about discipleship, which literally asks, are you in or are you out? Are you with me 100% or are you not with me at all? I want disciples, says Jesus. His mission is totally about making disciples. Let me remind you, I put you on the spot. What's our mission statement? As a church, I am putting you on the spot. Romans 
Brilliant. Becoming and making mature disciples of Jesus in Trell and Beyond. It's on the top of your notice sheets and your service sheets if you can't remember it. Do you think we've got that mission statement right? Yeah, why? Why have we got that right? Because that's Jesus' mission. Jesus is in the business of making disciples. Not just putting on a great show so that lots of people turn up. We can put on a great show and get people to turn up, but will we see people walking with Jesus day in, day out, through whatever they're going through? And so today is all about discipleship. What does and doesn't a true disciple of Jesus look like? And actually here he uses, I think, three negative examples to teach three crucial elements of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. We're going to look at each one. The first is this. A true disciple of Jesus must beware of pride. True discipleship starts with humility. Look at verses 19 and 20. Then a teacher of the law came to him and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. You see, in many ways, this man seems like the dream disciple, doesn't he? He approaches Jesus. He knows his Bible brilliantly. He's a scribe, a Bible scholar, and a Bible teacher. He'd have been incredibly respected by those around, held in high esteem. He'd have had great intellect and skill. And here he is saying to Jesus, yeah, yeah, I'll follow you. I'll come with you. Gosh, what I'd give for people to phone the church office and say to Julie, please can I have an appointment with Adrian? I am desperate to give my life to Jesus. You know, I'd make that number one in my diary, wouldn't you? Cancel everything else. Let's focus on that appointment. But actually, you sense that Jesus sees something that maybe we don't, because he has a fairly cool response. It's always difficult when you read the written word, because you can't hear the tone that something's said, and that's why we get into trouble when we send certain emails, don't we? Because people can't work out the tone in which we said it. And we'd love to know the tone in which... This man spoke and Jesus spoke back to him. But I, I get a sense there's a cool response here, don't you? And I wonder why that cool response comes. And wonder if it's that first word that comes from his mouth. Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. You see, it sounds respectful, rabbi, teacher. But if you know Matthew's gospel, five times Jesus is called teacher. And every single time it's on the lips of someone who isn't or won't ever become a disciple. Every single time someone says teacher, they don't end up being a follower of Jesus. So what's the problem? I will follow you wherever you go. Why doesn't Jesus embrace him? Why doesn't he welcome him? I want to suggest two possibilities. My favorite one is the second one. It may be an element of both, and they're both a bit speculative. But let me see what you think. The first is this. Maybe the scribe sees what a great asset he might be to Jesus. Maybe the scribe sees what a great asset he might be for Jesus. I love the paraphrase of one commentator. Teacher as one Bible expert to another. I've noticed who's on your team thus far. Fishermen. Lepers, soldiers, and middle-aged women. Perhaps you could use someone with a head on his shoulders and with some religious respectability. Say, someone like me, this is your lucky day, for I will follow you wherever you go. In other words, Jesus, 
I guess you'll be jolly glad to have me along. Just think what added value I'll bring. I wonder if there's an element of that. Or perhaps maybe the one I favor, which is this. The scribe sees what a great asset Jesus might be to him. The scribe sees what a great asset Jesus might be to him. You see, what you notice is about this man compared to the leper and the centurion in the previous passage is that this man is focused primarily on himself. Look who's the subject of verse 19 and compare to what the leper and the centurion say to Jesus. You see, this man talks about what he will do. I'll do this. They talk about what Jesus can do. If you would do this. If, if you would do this. I wonder if this man is only interested in what Jesus could add to his life, to his uh, kudos. Gosh, here's someone who seems to have a gathering. Wouldn't it be great to pick up some of his teaching too? Now, rabbis love to have those who would come and gather around them. Here's someone who knows the art of getting ones to gather around you. Maybe I might pick up some tips along the way for my gathering around ministry. Wouldn't it be great when I taught as a Bible scribe if I had great crowds like he did? See, there might be mutual advantage in hooking up together. They're in the same business, after all, aren't they? It's interesting, is it? I think probably, if we're honest, we're more in danger of this kind of thinking than we think. But when we follow Jesus, what is my primary interest? And if I'm honest, and I'm to say this is true for me, and maybe it's true for you, more than us, more, uh, uh, more than we would like to admit. I think I'm asking myself, what's in it for me? What's in it for me when I follow Jesus? How will following Jesus make my life better? And the reason I say that is my reaction that takes place in me when things start to go pear-shaped or I don't get the answers to the prayers that I've been praying and things don't go the way I want. But I soon turn quite cool on Jesus soon start to blame girls. You see, we want Jesus to fit into our lives, into our timetable. But the moment following Jesus becomes taxing, inconvenient, or makes an impact that I don't want, then we complain, go cool, and props even bail out. Yes, Jesus, I'll follow you as long as it's to my advantage. See, that's easy discipleship. It's all about me. And Jesus responds, verse 20, no, there is no easy discipleship. There is no discipleship which is simply about benefiting you, certainly not in the short term. What's it going to be like being a disciple, verse 20? Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. It's going to be comfortable following me. You think it's going to be easy following me. I think in a sense what he's saying is that you have no idea who you're talking to and you have no idea what you're talking about. Listen, he says, I'm the son of man. I am no mere teacher like you. I am the king that Daniel spoke of. The one who's been given absolute dominion over heaven and earth. You have no idea who I really am. Or you wouldn't be so self-consumed as you look at whether to follow me or not. What is going to benefit you in one sense shouldn't make a jot of difference because it is about who I am. Very striking, is it? The two miracles that happen next, the calming of the storm 
and the deliverance from those demons both show his dominion and power as an authority over the heavenly realms and the earthly realm. Your right response to Jesus simply humility. I am not worthy to follow you. I'm not worthy of anything. from you. Just say the word and I'll come. See the leper and the centurion. You know, it was a shock that Jesus was interested in them at all. What could they bring and offer to him? And, and they weren't worthy of anything that he might give. But amazingly, discipleship begins. Not some casual association, not some uh, mutual benefits if we hook up together kind of uh, relationship. Discipleship recognizes Jesus is the Son of Man, the creator of heavens and earth, and simply goes, no matter what it might look like. And Jesus is saying discipleship has deep personal cost. He's saying you will lose everything if you follow me. You have to be ready to give up everything, your home, your security, your comfort. That's what it means to follow the Son of Man, to pick up your cross, to be ready to lose everything. Remember, this is paraphrasing, whoever will lose his life for me will gain it. But whoever seeks to save his life will lose it. That's the way things work in the kingdom of God. If you're about what you can get, then you'll lose your life. If you're about giving up everything, then you will gain life. Secondly, beware of a half-heartedness or compromise. What is Jesus saying in the next passage is, the next part is, wholehearted, whole-life discipleship must start now or it may never start at all. It's a very hard-hitting passage. Look at verses 21 and 22. Another disciple said to him, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. But Jesus told him, follow me and let the dead bury their dead. Feel when you hear Jesus say that? How do you feel? Let me go and bury my father first. Let the dead bury them. Follow me now. How do you feel? It feels harsh. It's squeaky bum time, they call it. Like, help. This really the Jesus that I'm trying to reach out to others with. Really? Keep that bit quiet. One person said, what happened to Jesus meek and mild? What's happened to him? Very uncomfortable. Is he really so insensitive to this man's bereavement that he says, no, you can't even go to the funeral? Stop for a moment. I think the teaching that Jesus wants to give is hard-hitting. But let's not go down the wrong track to get to what he's trying to do. Because I want to suggest to you this is more about money than it is about mourning. It's more about money than about mourning. Why do I say that? It's because of this. If that man's father has just died, he would not have been following Jesus, at least not on that day. You see, in Israel, the dead had to be buried by law on the same day that they died. So the man would not have been up a mountain or hanging around Jesus. He'd have been at home already sorting the funeral. Something else is going on here. And this is where knowing a little bit of background helps. That is, in the ancient Near East, to bury my father was a well-known figure of speech. Like we say, it's raining cats and dogs or break a leg. You don't think it really is raining cats and dogs. 
Now, it's symbolic of something. It's not literal. And so Dick France, who was the principal of my old theological college, explains it like this. If the father had just died, the son could hardly be out at the roadside with Jesus. His place was to be keeping vigil and preparing for the funeral. Rather, to bury one's father is standard idiom for fulfilling one's filial responsibilities for the remainder of the father's lifetime, with no prospect of his imminent death. This then would be a request for indefinite postponement of discipleship, likely to be for years rather than days. See what the son is saying? It's not that his dad's just died. What he's saying is, look, just not yet. You know, I'd love to follow you, but just not now. You see, I've got an obligation as a son to help my dad in the family business. And if I don't, well, look, when he dies, whenever that might be, in years' time or days' time, I might not get my inheritance. But Jesus, not yet. I can't afford to commit to you yet. Not wholeheartedly. I will one day, when I'm financially secure, when I've got my own place, when life's less busy, when, when, when. You understand, don't you, Jesus? You understand what life's like, don't you, Jesus? No, it says Jesus, wrong, wrong, wrong. Discipleship, wholehearted discipleship is now or never so easy, isn't it, to say, well, look, Jesus, I'll kind of fit you in. I'll fit you into church. I'll fit in your mission. I'll fit in your service where I can for now. I do a little bit. And then, you know, when things have got a bit easier, the kids have grown up and life's a bit less busy. Now, when you reach retirement, and I've yet to find a retired person who tells me life is less busy when you're retired than before you get retired, which is a bit depressing for those of us who are looking forward to our retirement. That is, if you take that approach, I'll put it off until... What Jesus is saying is that until will never come. There'll always be stuff that you want to attend to. Or saying, yes, Jesus, now I'm ready to follow you. 100%, I'm all in right now. Jesus says, you've got to make a decision right now. Are you in or are you out? And he says, let the dead bury their own dead. Again, probably a little idiot. Don't you realize the seriousness of the situation? Without Jesus, we are spiritually dead. Life is dead without the Lord Jesus. Life lived not in relationship with Jesus is ultimately dead. Hero security are simply propping up a dead life. It's adding comfort to something that in the end will lead nowhere, ultimately. Jesus is saying either you concern yourselves with the life of the dead you concern yourselves with that that will bring genuine eternal life. And that comes only in relationship to me. You can't have a foot in both camps. It's going to be one or it's going to be the other. Disciples have to be wholehearted. You've got to be beware of half-heartedness, half-hearted commitment. And then finally, beware of fear. Discipleship is about courageous faith in the one who has power over everything. See, the crowds are so big, so Jesus says, let's get out of here. I don't like crowds. I want followers. So he takes 12 followers, 12 of them, 12 who had had the humility to respond to Jesus when he said, come, follow me. Those who had given up everything, 
giving up their homes, giving up all sorts of things and their own security to follow. And you think, crumbs, they must have been sorted as disciples. What would it be like to be them? They must really have got it all sorted. But no, there is still elements of discipleship they've got to learn. Because suddenly in the boat, this storm comes up and we are told they were full of fear. They are absolutely terrified. When they say, Lord, save us, we're going to drown, it literally means, Lord, save us, we are about to be destroyed. They fear their lives are coming to end. This is a nightmare. We've got to be careful when it comes to fear. I say this to someone, as many of you know, I battle a lot with anxiety, and I struggle sometimes when the Bible says, don't be anxious, because I don't want to be anxious, (laughs) and I pray really hard not to be anxious. But I do get anxious, don't you? Things scare me and unnerve me. And I'm not sure Jesus is saying that being fearful is just sinful and wrong. Not least because you go to Gethsemane and I see a Jesus who is literally sweating blood as he asks that the Father might take away this moment he's got to face. But he was not cool, calm and collected. He was sweating blood. But the difference was that he knew who he served. He knew who was with him. That allowed him to go, but not my will, Lord, but yours. And actually, I think what he's talking about here is a fear that becomes untethered from the spiritual realities. That is that debilitating panic, that overwhelming fear that too easily grips us. That will yell out, yell out, we're being destroyed, but has no sense of who it is who sits with us in that boat. You see, discipleship will at times be incredibly stormy. I genuinely believe this is a real event, but one that Jesus knew would live long in the memory of those who were in that boat. That as they stood before various governors and were placed in prison, and like Peter, crucified upside down on a cross, they would remember this moment. Because when you're going through the mill, you've got to decide, haven't you? Who is in the boat? Is someone here with me who can do something about this or aren't they? And will I actively trust them? Or will I, work, or will I act as if in the end it's down to me? See, Jesus is asleep. Many of us feel like God is far away and fast asleep when we're going through the tough times. And Jesus is pretty miffed, I said. I don't think he's miffed that they wake him up. I was having a nice sleep. I don't think actually he's miffed that their faith is quite weak. I think what it miffs him is the fact that there in the boat is the one who has authority over heaven and earth. And they still can't trust him. See, faith is to be without fear, or as one commentator puts it, Faith is a form of bravery. I wonder if you ever think of faith as bravery. See, the New Testament does. Faith is not simply a passive acceptance of truths, a kind of weak resignation that just kind of believes. No, faith is often depicted as courageous confidence that believes that Jesus is always equal to the occasion. He is always up to the issue at hand. That was how the leper came. I've got leprosy. Jesus can deal with it centurion he knew jesus could heal the slave 
Yes, it is the reality that this is tough, but I do know one who can deal with this. You see, as much as I've prayed with people and God has not seemingly stepped in and miraculously healed, what I have strangely discovered is my faith in God has not diminished. Got stronger. Still believe he's in the boat. I still believe he has the rain on heaven and earth. I still believe he has the power to do anything that he wants. But he knows this world better than I do. And my call is not to try and work it out or to make him explain himself, but to simply entrust myself to him. To actively have courageous confidence that he still is in You see, you can't just hang around Jesus, can you? Discipleship is tough. It is a tough calling. But that is what we're being called to. To humbly, wholeheartedly, immediately and with courageous confidence. Take the reins and place them in the hands of Jesus. The reins of our life. The reins of our families. And place them into the hands of Jesus. And then trust ourselves to him. How's your discipleship going? I'll just say, if, uh, I hope lots of you in small groups, if you are struggling with discipleship, why not tell people around you? I think often we're a bit embarrassed and we don't tell each other. How's it really going? And if you want to talk to someone about how it's really going, then please come and see me. I will uh, clear my diary. Sit down and talk and pray with you. Maybe you'll pray for me. Please don't just go back and face this on your own. Let's stand together. We keep our focus fully on Jesus. In Christ alone, my hope is found.